on this episode of AV Week. Lighting to replace Wi-Fi. Virtual reality to make a huddle room passe. Sonos loses round one in court. These stories and more on AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. This is AV Week, episode 214. We are the glue. Recorded September 25th, 2015. And welcome to another edition of AV Week. Welcome everybody to this show for the news and information in the integration world in a pro AV. We're glad to have you along. I'm George Tucker, your host. Tim is otherwise engaged. On this week's edition of AV Week, we have some special guests. First off... We have Melissa Dillman, the one and only. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you today, George? All right. Thanks for joining us today. And we also have Glenn Jystad. He is from InFocus, first-timer as well. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you here. Thank you for having me. All right. And we have, from our publisher's perspectives, uh, monthly stuff, Jonathan Blackwood. He is from Tech Decisions. That is from the EH Publications. Hi, guy. How's it going, guys? All right. Nice to have you on. All right, guys. Well, first off, let's talk about a little interesting new technology. As I'm having Google problems, here we go. Electrical Contractor is talking about light conversion for data. This is called VLC, Visual, Visible Light Communications. Uh, basically, what it is is using infrared or standard light to transmit data. I have some questions about this in the sense that, Melissa, I'm going to start with you. While this sounds interesting, and it has several neat little purposes that they recommend, this is a new technology, and my wonderment is, can we have this implemented with less frustration than we did, say, Wi-Fi and Ethernet a short five to ten years ago in this industry? Mm. I suppose I suppose that if we go to lights that have IP addresses in every fixture, perhaps it'll be simpler. I can't imagine, though, you know, and looking at this, I just can't imagine why I need it. It seems like there's an awful lot of data floating around um, with so many different signals that are, that are moving through a space like that. To me, I can't justify it, but... Um, I suppose there's a, a place and a time for it that makes sense, but I hmm. haven't put my finger on it yet. Well, Glenn, let me pose this to you uh, within focus. The article claims that the, the light spectrum that we can use is 10,000 times wider than the RF spectrum, which means that we could probably piggyback data on top of, say, projected images and projected uh, displays. Does this sound like something that you would see maybe implemented widespread, or is there only a very specific use case for these kind of things? 
you know, this is this actually to some extent is a pretty exciting technology. Uh, I mean, the the first thing for something like this is you make it possible and and you get it out there, and then the world is going to take this and do um, you know much more creative things with it than we we've, we've ever thought. So the notion of bidirectional data over over visual projection uh, is 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 something that we've never had a mechanism for, uh, and so you know to, to look at something like this as a way to solve that very possible. I think. I think their goal is to really use this not for sort of a replacement to Bluetooth, but as a, a, a way to, you know, increase uh, the overall bandwidth of the world. You know, find other ways to get fat pipes to connect different locations. And so, you know, whether it's something in a projection or it's a way that lights up uh, Central Africa, you know, this is this is an exciting technology. It's years from, you know, it, it having that kind of impact, but. Uh, you know, giving the industry technological options is an exciting thing in our industry. Hmm. I, go ahead. Yeah, George. You know, I think to me, I've been doing I've been doing a lot of IoT research, and to me, this is more of a marketing tool, and how I can collect more data on on where I'm at in a retail space, um, or how long I'm I'm spending in a certain area. Um, to put it on top of projection. That could be that could be an interesting an inter interesting use of this technology. Well, you know, and it is so, uh, Jonathan. I, I send to you because Tech Decision Magazines has an educational sector. It has a corporate type of uh, imprint that you do, right? So these very specific markets. The article makes pains to point out that uh, that it can be used for, like Melissa said, the GPS for very direct messaging to where you are specifically. Uh, I wonder if you see a use for it in the world of educational campuses and making that use instead of, instead of say, digital signage or in conjunction with. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, first thing I'll touch on is, is what was kind of pushed in the article that uh, retail spaces can use it for uh, sort of an, an in-store GPS uh, within the store so that customers can find products and using that they can, from the marketing perspective uh, using what products that they're searching for and where they go within the store they can gather a lot more retail stores can gather a lot more information about um, their customers so uh, going into the Internet of Things um, it's it's a lot of data and, and it's a lot of data management and it's a lot more just uh, specificity and what customers are looking for uh, as far as college campuses uh, absolutely uh, I'm, I'm thinking from something like a security standpoint um, if there's some sort of active shooting uh, uh, on campus or something like that and they can uh, find out where people are in relation to the campus uh, immediately um, that's something that any college campus is going to be looking for, uh, especially in today's climate. Obviously, the technology is further out, but you would imagine that you know things along those lines aren't going to change too much moving forward unless some very serious things happen that we don't need to get into. Um, so uh, other than that, just uh, with uh, visitors on campus needing to get around uh, facilities, new students needing to get to classroom you know, 321 and being able to just plug into their phone and look at it, and being able to distribute information uh, just essentially through the air. Uh, as long as the the rooms lit up, from what I understand about the technology, um, will give professors a way to engage with their students and and students a way to engage with one another um, more dynamically and and in the same vein as some of these collaboration solutions that we see. 
um, but uh, it, it seems like a, a lot quicker and a lot more robust um, as far as an education standpoint. Melissa, one of the things I wanted to ask about, and this is sort of the million-dollar question, I guess. This is in a lighting contractor magazine, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think this now puts electrical contractors in competition with the AV guys, or even more specifically, the IT department? Oh, wow. So now we want to invite the electrical contractors <laughs> into our space. That ought to be a good time. Um, yeah, I don't know if that necessarily brings them more into our space. I think at the end of the day, you still need the AV guy to take all of this data, to take all of these different signals and, and make them all come together as one. So um, maybe they can do the actual install, but I don't know that it's going to be a big threat. If anything, it may be an opportunity for us again to try to, uh, to be the glue that puts it all back together. Mm. You know, I think they're still they're itching for revenge from the years of all, losing all those light switches. <laughs> Yeah. to us. You know. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I want to ask one more then, and uh, Glenn, I'm going to put this to you. We talk about the um, the fact that we can use this as a transmission replacement. They make mention of this of being, say, transmitting via ultra, uh, ultraviolet light or higher end frequencies between buildings or between campuses. Do we think this is maybe a safer option than microwave, or do you see this being feasible? Well, I think it's 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 going to coexist with other kinds of transforms, like or, or directional transforms, like uh, like microwave. This uh, they may find this to be a more cost-effective way of uh, uh, joining uh, buildings on a campus without digging trenches and, and running copper, uh, for example. Uh, so that may be a way to uh, facilitate substantially higher bandwidth on on a campus environment. Um, microwave may not be the right technology for uh, a campus environment. Mm. And when they mentioned it, though, I have to say, all I can see in my head was the old, uh, was the naval ships? Well, I forget what the name of the devices they used to transmit the, the uh, Morse code via light. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just saw some guy up there trying to transmit it going to the shutter. <laughs> you know, George, I mean, as, as we're losing more and more of that RF space, as it's getting auctioned off in that white space, Mm. Maybe, maybe it's a maybe it's a viable option in the future. Interesting. All right. Well, let's move on to another sort of groundbreaking technology, or at least they're trying to make it so. Uh, this is from our friends at AV Magazine. Virtual reality grows at a rapid pace and opens up new markets. Well, here's my question for you guys: Then, is it really a new market, or is this something that's very specific, like we went through with 3D and the rest? Uh, you know, Glenn, I want to start with you on this. What are your thoughts on this being a sort of game changer as they try to infer here? Uh, you know, there's. I think it's exciting to, to sort of bring the, the, the element of reality into uh, uh, what are typically highly controlled broadcast environments. And, and if different VR technologies can expand the experience, then more to it. All right. Uh, Jonathan? Do you see this as something you would cover for your demographic and audience, or is this really just another clickbaity buzzword like 3D and okay, I'll say it, IoT is and it can be? Uh, actually, last summer I got a chance to try out the Oculus Rift as part of a, in Cambridge as part of a Marriott event. Uh, they essentially did some shooting at different uh, locations, and you got into this like pod and and put on the headphones, and uh, they they warped you to like Hawaii and at a building at the top of London. 
Um, it was cool. It was definitely something that I enjoyed checking out. Uh, I don't see the application as far as a, as a game changer goes. Uh, for video games, of course, uh, the more immersive you can get it, uh, you, you can get the user, the, the better they like the system. Um, so I can, I can see it having a big impact there. Uh, they mentioned things like flight simulations. I, I mean, in specific use cases like that, I can definitely see it being uh, beneficial. Um, as far as entertainment goes, yes, it would be very cool to, you know, feel like you're sitting courtside at these games, but, um, you know, a lot of people, and especially uh, with sports and things like that, it's a social thing, so cutting yourself off and, and throwing something on so that you can't be, uh, you know, talking to the person next to you or seeing how they're speaking to you, uh, I'm just not sure how well people will take it. It does seem a lot like, um, you know, 3D TV where it's, uh, it, it's meant for the user, uh, and that kind of takes away from the social aspect of it. Um, you know, I, I'll be interested to see how and if businesses utilize it, but I think it's got a ways to go before people start taking it seriously enough where they're going to um, devote the research and development into coming up with something that will be highly adopted to, to where it's worthwhile. Melissa, I'll ask you a final question on this. Virtual reality, or as some call it, augmented reality, I'm not quite clear actually what the difference is, and maybe that's sort of a, a really problem for the marketplace, but is this, um, is this something we could foresee being, say, the replacement to the huddle room? Who needs to build the room when you've got the room on fixated on your head? Uh, you know, that's, that's kind of sexy. Um, I unfortunately, maybe I'm just biased, but you know, I, I fall in that small category of people who just don't handle um, these effects very well. They make me nauseous. So for me, it's it's sort of a lost thing. But um, along the same lines, I don't know. I think the visual, the virtual reality uh, overall gives you so much. Um, you get so much information, and and so many people have limited abilities to watch it for any length of time. Mm. That I'm not sure the value. However, hanging around the back rows of Infocom, I saw some very cool holograms. Now, hologram, you know, holograms are kind of running in that same arena. I'd like to see those come to play. And then a holograms in your boardroom? Yeah, that'd be great. Hmm. I think where the business world wants to go first is, is more to the immersive experience, you know, that, that the remote imaging of, of people isn't, you know, a small screen or a small window on, on a screen, but it's, it's something where it looks like you're looking through a window. Uh, does it have to be 3D to be more dramatic? I, I don't think so. But, you know, moving from sort of, you know, uh, sort of limited experiences to immersive experiences and then ultimately to to sort of a reality or a virtual reality thing, um, I, there's there's definitely demand for that. I mean, I've seen... I've seen um... Uh, I've seen videos about uh, uh, graphic artists and things like that using 3D to, to immerse themselves and to do drawings within three dimensions. And, and that's what I'm talking about, about specific use cases. I just don't see that, like, replacing the huddle room, I don't see that it is that much more beneficial than just having your screen up there and kind of being in the actual world versus uh, throwing the virtual reality helmet on and being able to see around. I, I um you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how, how it evolves, but I, I just think that we've already kind of gotten the norm for the huddle room, and I don't see 3D adding to that. It's more, it feels more gimmicky to me. 
to some extent, we kind of we have a, 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 a cheap version of this, right? It is throw somebody with a with an iPhone out into the forest, and uh, you know they join uh, a, a hangout or a video conference, and just their ability to be mobile and move around you know, dramatically changes the the group's experience uh, for having somebody being able to connect that's that's live and in a location. Um, you know, the next step of of the the remote people actually maybe seeing the picture of that forest surrounding them, that that's a pretty exciting step forward too, or something like that. Not exactly what's listed in this uh, this article, but a direction for the industry for sure. Interesting, interesting. All right. Well, another topic I want to bring up that's similar in vein of does it really matter and what are we really getting with this is Sony and their HDR. So Sony and their HDR, HDR. Sony adds HDR to three more. 4K TVs, and this is from our friends at Twice. And by the way, a great newsletter. If none of you have done it, Twice.com. I love this site. All right, so HDR, the three more 4K TVs. They talk a lot about content, content from Netflix and others, but nothing from Sony that I see. Uh, I'm going to start off with you, Melissa. Is HDR really something we want to see? Is it really a good sort of add-on, or, or, or is this just, we can do it, so we're going to? Um, HDR, you know, getting into that high dynamic range, um, I think that's really what people are going to value out of 4K. I think over pixel count, <clears throat> sorry, over pixel count, it's more about the quality of the image. And what they're talking about when we move into this high dynamic range um, is that my shadows are, gonna, are going to be better, so I'll get different, um, I'm going to get different experiences in the lights and the darks versus what I'm getting right now. So, um, you know, if I were to watch some of these shows, like, I don't know, Game of Thrones, I've heard it's a good show, um, the scenes are shot very dark, and I lose a lot of the detail. With HDR, I should be able to capture all that back and make it a better image. So I think that's really what people are looking for, but um, depending on whose version of it, everybody's doing a little something different in how they're encoding. <clears throat> so, uh, but I do think it's important. Hmm. Uh, Jonathan, is this something where the sort of the end clients, the institutions, are looking at? And is HDR and UHD and 4K, is this vegetable soup a problem? Are we really causing more issues with all of this and not really defining it well enough? Or are they just rolling along and they're getting it? Um, I, I think that it is like a lot of relatively small add-ons to uh, picture quality in, in that um, it's something that when it is the first, uh, it's most likely going to be adopted across the board in one way or another within the next couple of years. And the difference between something with uh, regular dynamic range versus high dynamic range, uh, most companies for the most part, uh, unless they're uh, showing off products and things like that, if they're just using it for digital signage in the office or they're just using it in a huddle space, they don't need high di dynamic range. They don't need that, that extreme contrast between the lightest light and the darkest dark. Um, I, I'll, I'll mention that the deal that, that Sony's doing with Amazon where they give you $100 of HDR content with uh, you know a few movies that I, I aren't the greatest movies of all time, it feels very much like a ploy to get people to buy in now because they even might have an idea that down the line um, they're not going to be the only ones with this technology. And it could just be you know, a regular deal with Amazon and Sony to kind of boost the profile of both. But, but 
usually when you see something being given away like that on top of the announcement, it, it just feels to me like it's uh, maybe not necessarily something that people are going to need. As far as within the corporate realm, I, I seriously doubt that a company, unless they just have unlimited funds and, and really money isn't a problem with them in the first place, I, I don't see them pushing uh, up uh, in price to get HDR in order just to show off their branding a little bit more um, uh, with a little bit more darkness and, and lightness in, in different spots. So um, I, I, I'd like to see if in a year and a half uh, most uh, TVs don't come with this. And uh, if that's the case, then I guess I was wrong. But right now, I, I doubt that uh, I doubt that people are gonna are gonna pay premium just to get it. No, I have to say it's it's my my considered thought that the the free is either a virus or it's a desperate plea. So either way, there's something uh, that's a, a foot behind it always. The hook is there. Uh, Glenn, set us straight. Is this something of merit, or is there really just fluff behind this? You know, this certainly seems to have more more feet than 3D for consumers does. I mean, uh, Melissa, to your point, you know, there just is forever going to be a, a number of people that don't enjoy 3D for the obvious reasons. Um, if there's broad acceptance of HDR, and more importantly, if there becomes, uh, a, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a, a street pride thing of, hey, do you have HDR, you know, oh, you know, that, then it could take off as something of as a reason why you buy a, a television with that capability. Is it a way to justify 4K? You know, we're sort of waiting for 4K content in the same way we'll be waiting for HDR content. So, you know, the world lapped up HD in a heartbeat just because it was such a substantial improvement. Um, whether it's 4K that ultimately matters or drives the purchaser HDR, you know, remains to be seen. My my suspicion is that uh, it's gonna it's it's gonna be who's creating content and and where uh, where are consumers really getting the hype out of. Um, probably gonna lead with 4K and HDR could just could could fall away as the uh, the new version of 3D. Might be an evolutionary bridge, as it were, to something more. All right. Well, you know, all of this that we're talking about and these new technologies and. We have to know that our clients need this stuff. And from our friends at AV Network, determining what your client needs to do, the age-old question. This article goes on to talk about how we're sort of caught in a quandary uh, between Scylla and Charybdis, I suppose, is the way to put it. Thank you, Sting. Uh, that we don't always get to talk to the people who are going to use it. We get to talk to the people with the purse strings, and those decisions don't always mesh with what is really needed. So... I'm going to start this off. I'll start again with you, Glenn. Why are we not looking towards the end user first? We seem to get caught in this trap, don't we? Uh, well, you know, in, in the business world, there's no such thing as the end user because exactly what you said, you know, the, the decision is, is easily a, a three-stakeholder, minimum three-stakeholder decision, you know. Uh, invariably, it's the IT person that it just sort of runs the shop. It's the guy with the purse strings. And then the people that are looking to improve their experience, the actual end user. Um, with the Mondo Padded in Focus, you know, it was an innovative product, and there was a, a lot about it that excited many people. But as, as it was exposed to different companies, uh, we've taken in feedback and requirements 
uh, across the board, you know, uh, and every single one of them wanted something particular, whether it's on the IT side or on the end user side or cost option side, whatever it is. And, and that's just business. And so, you know, you can't ignore the user uh, uh, or you can't ignore the other, the other parties uh, just for the sake of the user. That's just, that's just business now. You know, Melissa, I'm going to put this to you as well. Uh, Glenn makes some good points about that it's just good business and that we should be paying attention, but does it even start back at the manufacturing side? I mean, we make a product that is designed to do something, you know, gazingas to gazaukas or processing something, but how much thought goes into the process of where in the chain and how users are going to interface with it? Well, I think it depends, of course, on what your product is. Um, and I think sometimes we do get a little tunnel vision when it comes to manufacturing. We, we see how our product works, certainly within our own line, but then sometimes you can forget that there are a host of other products that are around it. So um, maybe that's where they get lost, uh, thinking about how will this actually be used in the field and sometimes you know you get a surprise that people will find a way to use it that you weren't expecting so certainly something we should all be considering um, how effective will it be and will they be able to figure it out it's like Apple and why Apple works you know you can pick an Apple device up it just works so I think that's what people are looking for yeah and it's it seems to be yes like the Apple example they um they have an ecosystem that sort of predicts and can be flexible enough to accommodate uh, that unique use or that odd use, although not always, the whole debate over there, right. stylus and pen. Uh, Jonathan, I'm going to throw this one to you. What they're really talking about here is a service economy model in which you are very intimately related to your client from tip to toe. Uh, do you see why, do you think that this, this is a process that existed in the, in the integrator world from the beginning? Or has the conversion to AT, uh, IT, AT, <laughs> IT being the decision makers, or the decider in the Bushisms, uh, has exacerbated this at all? Um, I think it depends on who the integrator was. I'm sure that there were, you know, I can't speak to, the, to going too far back, but I'm sure that there were always companies that took the end user into account like this. Um, I, I think that what we're missing in this is that um, you can't blame the manufacturer to a certain extent. If the product doesn't work or it doesn't do something that it was that it, it markets itself as being able to do, then yes, you blame the manufacturer. But when an integrator is being used by the end user, the point of the integrator is to be that bridge between what the manufactured product says it can do and can do and what the end user needs it to do. And that's why they're building out these systems and they're and they're they're patching together multiple products to to eventually come to the correct end. Um, so uh, I think that integrators do need to, especially today, do need to, um, it, it says in this article, uh, go in for a day and really see what they're doing in the meetings to find out what needs to be done. And yes, that's a significant amount of time that you're uh, devoting and, and that's, a, that's resources that you're devoting and that's sales team members that you're devoting. But at the end of the project, when you come out with a system that uh, that management is happy with because it costs X amount of dollars, that the end user is happy with because it works how they need it to, and that the IT department is happy with because there's not too much troubleshooting or anything that they have to do to make sure that everything's working together, then that's capital for you 
in, in that you have happy customers, you have uh, people that you can refer new customers to, uh, and, and you're building complicated and interesting systems that you can help showcase uh, moving forward. Um, so I, I guess uh, I think it should be up to the integrator to um, find out exactly what the company needs, even if the company might not be sure of it, and do everything within their power to make sure that's met. Now, no, uh, not always is that going to work. You're going to have people that know better than you do, uh, you know, and you're going to have people that have their own ideas of what products want to be used, and they're never going to listen to you. And as the integrator, it is your job to give them what they ask for. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that uh, it's a it's a relatively new concept across the board. But I think that that's because end users are becoming more educated on what systems are able to do and when they're not uh, and when the system isn't doing what they need it to they're holding the integrator responsible so whether that's fair or not the integrator is responsible to go out and find out what they really need and what they're going to be happy with. Glenn, I'll throw this back to you for a moment. Give me, is there a reason not to be this involved or, or rather conversely what can I make the argument to an integrator that the expense outlay, I'm not making money right there, it's not a billable hour, that this really works? I mean, I know Jonathan touched on some of this, but there is more to it that, right? There's a relationship there. There, there absolutely is. It's, it's one of the things that in Focus we really cherish is our reseller network and, and people that have been within Focus for a very, very long time. They know and love our products as much as we do, and... And, and they appreciate, in, in a lot of cases, the complexity and the, uh, the capabilities of different products. And they realize that their customers may buy a product for one use and not, real, and not even know that they have capabilities for other things that they can do in their company. It becomes a win-win for the reseller when they can go back to their customer uh, in, in you know, update meetings or just you know, uh, catch up with them and say, hey, by the way, did you know it could do this too? Uh, they end up looking like heroes because they get to help those customers evolve the way they do business or the way that they conduct themselves. And so it, it, there, there is, a, there is a, a level of complexity for, for uh, the advanced products, and there's just no way to expect the end users to, to fully understand everything that they can do with it. So it's an opportunity for those resellers to really look like champions. Hmm. Yeah, no. You go ahead. Again, okay. George. Mm -hmm. um, I teach a class for AQAB and teach a quality design class and one of the things that people have challenges with in that class is that entire program is focused on the end user. Not the guy writing the check, not the architect, but the guy who's actually going to be in the room using the equipment. And it's a key component of that program. It's something we work on. Um, and some of my some of my students, it takes a minute for them to wrap their heads around. It's actually the person who's using the equipment. So, it it is an interesting uh, approach. Yeah, I have to agree, and it's it's sort of the 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 realm of we always do it that way. This is the proper way, but the proper way is not always the most conducive to the business you have. I mean, look at the open platform or the open room that Facebook exhibited during their Periscope and Meerkat um, videos, where he showed that they had a place to talk but it was open, the same concept here. Will we always do audio and huddle rooms this way? Well, maybe not for this use case in this particular company, and you can gain a lot of innovation by doing that, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's a very, uh, I think it's a very good concept that uh, companies, manufacturers have been using. I think the integrators need to understand that that's an cash outlay, that's a salesman spending more time, but 
brother, it's going to pay off in the long term. Uh, something As a manufacturer, you can take strategies. You can either decide that you know better than the end user and you're going to decide their experience, uh, or you can do what this article suggests, which is go and listen and talk to the user and try to try to create products that match the way they do work already and not have them reinvent themselves just to use technology. Yeah, true. It's, it's a very true statement. It's, it's kind of shocking that it's still something we're grappling with, but I guess the models of economy don't always let you move. Or maybe we're just we're aging out and uh, the new guys will, will make it happen. Uh, speaking of, though, the innovations and what the client wants, uh, a little kerfuffle going on between DM Holdings and Sonos. And here's something that affects all of these things we were just talking about. This is a lawsuit, if you haven't been watching it, where Sonos claims that DM or uh, Denon is copying everything about their system with their Heos systems, from the name that's too similar to the marketing material to the presentation to the technology. It's a tight one, and what we're talking about in this one is that DM lost a big battle because they were trying to get all of the lawyers dismissed. Uh, those lawyers, at one point or another, seem to have worked for DM Holdings in some capacity, uh, the judge threw it out, saying, well, they seem to have been gone long before any of this came up, so no dice, guys. Here are my questions to you guys about that. Um, first off, you know, I'm going to start with you, Melissa. Do you think this is really an issue? Do you think there's anything really going on here, or is it just, oh, man, you figured out a way to get in our market, we don't like it? You know, uh, yeah, you're in my market. I think there's probably somewhere in the middle there's a truth, right? To me... Looking at this, primarily, what's it affect? It affects a bunch of attorneys who are going to get filthy rich off of it. Um, and you know, I mean, it's it's a it's an Apple iPhone fighting with you know the Android version. They're pretty similar, but uh, it's going to be a matter of who who has the best product at the end of the day, regardless of how similar they are. So, the attorneys though are going to eat well. <laughs> yes, this is they always eat well. Uh, Glenn, does this really do anything to help us, though? I mean, by defining clear rules and what really is uh, possession by someone, or are we really—and I hate to say it—that old trope—are we stifling innovation with these kind of lawsuits? I've I've been in I've been building products for a, an awfully long time, and and you know, patents, trademarks, and uh, copyright are there to protect. Uh, the inventors to some extent, you know, they're there to invent the protectors, the inventors. The, the reality is it's, it is a big legal game and for a lot of companies it's, you know, my stack of patents is bigger than your stack of patents so I win. Um, and, and in cases like this uh, you, you begin to wonder if, if, the, if the legal uh, protection is is impacting user choice, but that's the nature of patent. If if you get a good patent, then you've got a period of time to monetize your invention. Uh, it's not forever, uh, but you do get a period of time, and you have an obligation to protect it. So if Sonus has the patents, uh, it's in their right and their obligation to try to protect it. Um, a lot of times, these kind of things just end up with an agreement uh, on, a, on a royalty, you know, a technology royalty, and, and they'll work it out in the end if, if that's what's best for, for customers and best for the business of both companies. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, I'm going to throw this to you, although this may not be your 
sort of area of expertise, but does it matter to the tech decision guys, to the corporate uh, AV managers or to the school managers, who's making what and all this kerfuffle? They just want a product that works, no? I mean, yeah, that, it, it, that's exactly what it comes down to. They just want a, a product that works, and they will uh, likely not pay attention to this until either one or both products are out, and after all of this nonsense is behind uh, the companies, uh, that's when the end user will take a look and say, either, the, either I want this system uh, or I want that system. Um, speaking to your point of earlier, it, it probably does do a bit to stifle creativity, only, and what I would say, it's not really a problem with these two companies because they're a bit established already, but you worry that, you know, uh, a large company with a certain patent could go after a small company in legal and, and with legal fees bury them underneath them even if it ends up being unsubstantiated so that's something definitely to worry about but as far as the end user goes you know they're not paying attention to things until they're released true true and, and I guess styling is styling you know I know many sites using the Apple look I worked for a company that we did something very innovative and a very, very large company in uh, the Pacific Northwest decided they would do something similar. And um, we ultimately won the patent violation or patent infringement case, but it was the end of the company regardless. So, you know, patents are there to try to protect the small guy, but they don't guarantee the small guy gets the business opportunity. It's a yeah. war. Yeah, indeed. Indeed it is. Um, sorry, I had a little technical glitch there. We'll have to fix that later. Um, so, yeah, you know, well, it's funny because I'm looking at the page, and there is innovation in this industry that I fear that this kind of lawsuit will have a problem with. Uh, specifically, I think, uh, what is it, uh, TDG is advertising there, Daniel Kupikash's uh, company, uh, that they could get affected by stuff like this because they're making speakers, and everybody tries to stomp on everybody about some patent they have with some speaker that, in the end, really doesn't turn out to be anything, and we sort of all lose interest because we just want stuff that looks nice and works really well. Uh, and I, I worry about that. Even, uh, I guess, what, Jeremy Burkhart, who has his new, uh, was it Origins? Acoustic. So th those are cool stuff. All right. Moving on to something that's kind of interesting, and we don't always cover hardware here, uh, but I found this one a bit intriguing. Uh, it is a substitution audio signal for HDMI. It's an odd little box. I know in the pro AV world, that meaning the world of staging and events, we've done this quite a bit. Uh, I know in some school systems you want to be able to override the system or the audio and put it right into the stream rather than have a distributed network of some sort. But um, this is an odd little box, and I have questions about it. Um, Melissa, I'm going to start with you with this. I have questions that are somewhat technical, and you may or not have an answer to them, but can they really do this with HDCP? And, and what are they taking up in my chain to do this? Do we even... Yeah, it's, it's an interesting little box. And, and like you said, this is kind of a pre-show, pre-CDA announcement. Mm. So um, they're leaving us hanging a little bit. I do worry about um, HDCP. That's, that's going to be an interesting tell on, on how it can handle that or what HDCP does when it sees it. Certainly HDCP 2 dot. Um, you know, is it compliant or not? Uh, pulling out the audio, I, there are probably some specific areas this makes sense. Um, there are other boxes I think we can do that with as well, but being that this is a CD announcement, um, it'll be interesting to see what else they can tell us about it. Uh, it's an interesting little box, got a nice price point. So, uh, 
we'll see we'll see what else comes to play with it uh, as they release more information. And Glenn, let me put this to you for just a second. Um, not accusing this company of anything, but there was in years past a number of small box companies who were making products that skirted the specs of HDMI and HDCP, specifically saying, "Ah, eh, we don't have to worry about that. Don't worry about it. We just we just subvert it." Is there a danger here in us either A, not being able to get something to a client because that spec won't allow it, or B, a, a company or an institution not really firming up their spec? Uh, I mean, do they let something like this fly if it's actually skirting it, or am I making a mountain out of a molehill? Well, I mean, HTCP is out there to, to help the content creators trust our technology. Uh, you know, as, th as soon as things went digital, the, the, the audio video guys were bound and determined, or rather the video guys were bound and determined to make sure that Napster didn't happen to video. Uh, and they, they, they got all of the major uh, tech players to agree to different protection schemes for the transfer of, uh, of, of protected video between different uh, devices. Um, and, and, and that's how we ended up with HTCP. So, you know, I suspect that, uh, you know, that there will be those that uh, absolutely want to enforce the veracity of a protected environment and, and make sure that it doesn't expose their content to, uh, to pirating. Um, if, if, this, if products like this don't, don't lend towards pirating, but lend towards sort of just a custom local experience like uh, karaoke over a music video or, or something to that effect. Not that that is HTCP protected, but um, they may let it slide. I, I, I think that uh, you know you'll see the the lawyers, uh, uh, the army of lawyers, come after them if uh, they think it's a threat. No, well, that's that's certainly true. You know, <laughs> lawyers are everywhere. Yes, I wonder. <laughs> when looking at this, I kind of wonder what it'll do to the EDID chain, too. Oh, yeah. Is it, it going to pass it? Is it uh, What's it going to do in that process as well? Because all that information is already being passed along. How will it affect that? That could be interesting as well. It's a very good point that I didn't even think of. I know I deal with EDID on the DVI side all the time here. Mm -hmm. Yes, live and event staging people, we still use DVI. Sorry. Um, but yeah, it's a very good question because I, there's a whole host of issues, and I guess we'll find out at Cedia whether they have solved them or they just ignore them. But it's a curious one to keep track of, especially as we try to develop stuff. Uh, Jonathan, real quick for you, this is just a little throwdown box. Um, are we looking at, in your side of the world, guys, looking more for systems all incorporated into one, say the ecosystem itself, or are the throwdown boxes the bread and butter of getting things done there? No, I, I mean, uh, they're looking for systems that do everything uh, together. They're looking for the full ecosystem of things. End users are very much less concerned with the specific hardware that's behind a system than with uh, the overall system and how it works. Um, so I, I think that this is, uh, it, it looks like a lot of other things that, I, that we've seen in the past, and it's definitely the price point helps out, and that'll help, uh, especially uh, within higher ed and, and K through 12, uh, specifically uh, with with systems um, in that space where uh, schools might not have the type of capital that some companies have. Um, you know, it, it'll be helpful, but uh, for the most part, as, as long as it works, uh, they're, they're much less concerned with how it works. All right, well, that has to be our last, let's start that again.
Well, that has to be our last article. Uh, we have run out of time and a great conversation. The time flies when you have people who really know what they're talking about and really love to discuss this stuff. Um, I want to thank our guests. First off, Melissa Dillman. She's from Kramer, and she is from home today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, George. Where can they find out more about you and the company you work for? Well, you can always find us at, at uh, www.kramerus.com, or you can talk to me on Twitter at Melissa Dillman. There you go. I also want to thank first-timer Glenn Jystad. Thank you so much, sir, for coming on. Great conversation with you. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, as, you know, uh, in focus, the, 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 the proud father of the Mondopad product out there, we're happy to uh, include that in any discussion of AD. <laughs> Thank you. And where can they find out more about you and those products? Well, uh, uh, certainly in focus.com. Uh, we have uh, all of our products and all the information there. Uh, I'm available on Twitter at GJistat. Very cool. And, of course, another first-timer for us, Jonathan Blackwood. He's from Tech Decisions and EH Publications, sir. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. I had a blast. All right. Where can they find out more about you and uh, Tech Decisions? Yeah, uh, Tech Decisions has four verticals uh, that are uh, tailored toward the end user. So uh, CorporateTechDecisions.com, HigherEdTechDecisions.com, K-12, K-12TechDecisions.com, and WorshipTechDecisions.com. And you can find me on Twitter at CorporateTD. Yes, and they're all very fine publications, and not just because they publish some of my work. <laughs> um, this is a production of AV Nation. It is a network built by you and me working AV professionals. You can see this and many more AV-centric shows at AVT, avnationtv.com. Please join us there for more. We are supported by not just you and your viewership, but by our underwriters. Please give them a visit. There they are on our website. Very fine people, one and all. And they appreciate when you stop by and say, hey, thanks for underwriting that AV Nation, guys. I want to thank everyone. Uh, a couple of notes for you to keep out for. AV Mag is having their AV Awards. I believe it's hashtag AV Award. Keep a look out for that. Also, we have a new show premiering next week. It is called Connected with Dave Danto. It is about Internet of Things and all the surrounding technologies. It's a very interesting show. I uh, hope you join us for that. It will be broadcast next week. Thanks so much for watching, and we look forward to speaking with all of you very soon. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation.